So welcome to the Love Fly podcast, I'm Paul Tizard, Fear of Flying Coach, and today's guest is Captain Emma Henderson, and I want to say thank you, Emma, officially, uh, for doing so much in the Facebook group, because Emma often replies to the sort of pilot tricky questions that you all pose, which is brilliant. And also the reason why we're doing this podcast is because Emma suggested it and Emma's already been a guest. So uh, without further ado, welcome, Emma. It's good to be back it's good to see you and it's great to have been chatting to some of you on the Facebook groups as well yeah it's really really appreciated for those who haven't found the Facebook group it's just called Love Fly it's a private group so you'll have to answer a few questions to get in because we don't want anybody in there sort of selling stuff we want people that generally want to help or want to be helped and Emma's been brilliant at giving you've been brilliant giving your time so Emma, tell us a little bit, just so for those who perhaps haven't met Emma before, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your background to remind people. Yeah, well, um, I spent 12 years of my life flying the Airbus A320s around Europe for EasyJet. I was a captain there for four years, based at Luton and then Gatwick. Started off at Stansted, then moved to Luton and Gatwick. Prior to that, I did have about an eight-year gap in flying. I started flying on the University Air Squadron. So I was taught to fly by the military, but I didn't join because they thought I'd be a better navigator than a pilot. So I kind of did things a different way around than a lot of other people. So I was already in my late thirties when I joined an an airline and my career, or certainly my flying career for the time being came to an end in March, 2020. I think we all know why. So I now run Project Wingman which is the charity I founded on the back of my flying days. And we've provided um, more than 50 years worth now of wellbeing support to frontline NHS staff. Awesome. Yeah. And for those who don't know, Emma's work was recognised. We've got an MBE for it, which was very modest about, but sort of recently the footage. So well done again for that. That's an awesome thing to get, you know, to be nominated. And you didn't know about it as well. So we thought, It'd be really nice because there are a few podcasts already that we've done where pilots have spoken about specific things that are on people's minds. I thought I'd ask the question to Emma, why aren't you scared of flying? How can you be so confident? (laughs) Well, I think the the simple answer is knowledge, to be honest with you. You I've spent 30 years of my life now flying aircraft, albeit with a break here and there. So it's just knowing what I'm doing Mm. and knowing how it works and knowing my aircraft, which means obviously the training I've received has been good and experience. And when you get into the right hand seat of a passenger jet for the first time, everything's quite new and you're like a rabbit in the headlights. But you know how the aircraft works because you know how to fly. You know, I've sat something like 30 exams in order to allow me to sit in that seat in the first place and several flight tests. So I've jumped through a lot of hoops, as has every pilot that sits in either the right or the left-hand seat. Mm. And it's just, we're constantly learning as well. So, you know, it's not the case of once you become a pilot, you you stop finding anything out. You carry on learning about your aircraft, about the operation, about what to do in certain sorts of weather, how to handle certain situations. And then you work your way up to becoming a captain. Mm. And that, again, is a very rigorous course. Yes. You, 
doesn't happen easily. It takes about two years to go through the process from when you're first sort of looked at by the company mm. as whether or not you're going to be suitable to when you finish your sort of your captain's course, your command course. Um, and even then, you don't just get let loose on passengers straight away. Yeah, there's a trainer in the right-hand seat with you for a few weeks until you've found your way into the job and, and you're capable of doing it yourself. So, you know, um, it's just knowledge. And if I don't know the answer to something, I look it up or I ask a question. Yeah, I think it's often a surprise to people how much you have to go through to, to just even get to the right-hand seat because... And it's quite a jump act, isn't it? Because you do your commercial pilot's license and you, you do all your, and then it's, I don't know if I've got the correct terminology, but it's a frozen until you get, you, yeah, it's it takes you on. ATPL, yeah, exactly. So first of all, you get a private pilot's license and that allows you to fly yourself around and mm. other people as passengers, but they can't pay you and you can't do any flying to and receive money for it. It's another 200 hours or you have to have a total time of 200 hours before you can even sit your commercial flight test. And that's slightly different when you do an integrated course because you're basically being trained to fly an airliner. But when you do yes. what's called the modular route, you learn to fly in little what we might call bug smashers, little Cessnas, things like that. And then you build up to larger aircraft and you build up your hours. And in my case, I became an instructor. So I was teaching people to fly and you learn an awful lot about flying if you're teaching other people to do it as well. Yeah. Then you get uh, you have to sit at the, the difference between a commercial pilot's license and an air transport pilot's license is exams. Yes. So you have to sit these ATPL exams. And that gives you, you're absolutely right, a frozen air transport pilot's license, which allows you to fly a passenger aircraft, but you then have to do a thousand hours before you are allowed to unfreeze your license. So you can, you know, a thousand hours flying is quite a lot of time. Mm. But by the time you have an unfrozen ATPL, which allows you to then progress on in your career, you've already, you've already done quite a lot of flying and you're already building up. Um, yes. a big stack of knowledge I put, presumably there's two questions that jumped out for me there I'll try and I'll do it in reverse order so presumably all that time where it's frozen you're heavily supervised I guess well the, for the very beginning bit you're heavily supervised because you're sitting in the right hand seat of an aircraft and the person sitting in the left the captain the left hand seat has to be a training captain mm. so that's what happens for the very first sort of introduction onto what's called the line, line flying. Mm. Um, you have a line trainer and then there's certain points at which you have to be examined. So you pass your type rating and the line training part of that, you have type rating examiners and different levels of trainer who are allowed to do certain things and, and supervise certain things. And for the first part of that, until you're deemed to be competent enough you have a safety pilot sitting in a pull down seat in the back of the flight deck called a jump seat. And they are there so that basically if anything should happen that incapacitates the captain or if for some reason you become unwell, they're able to then assist with the flight and make sure that you're not just left on your own. That's really good. That's very reassuring for people, actually. So just rewinding a bit, there was a question that popped into my head as you're talking about being an instructor. And I was thinking, you know, I taught my kids to drive. And there was a few moments where I was like, 
oh my goodness you know but i didn't have the set this another steering wheel or a set of controls and i'm sure you may have done yeah i did but when you're teaching someone to fly did you ever get nervous doing that no not at all because you do have dual controls you have two sets of flight controls two sets of pedals and also you go through a course to learn how to be an instructor mm. it's not just a case of i know how to fly i'm going to tell someone else how to do it you are trained to instruct and that includes the ground school briefs that you have to give and then there's a set syllabus that you follow as well so you know you might have a day when you're doing nothing but teaching people how to fly straight and level and it might get a bit repetitive but you just end up you do whatever lessons people have got to and you you do some more than others but but no it never is it was never in alarming in any sense I mean the only time I would ever sort of Think, think to myself I hope I've done the right thing was sending someone solo for the first time mm. so when someone's got to a point where you you believe them to be competent enough to fly the aircraft by themselves they go and do one solo circuit and um, you know you will have been practicing circuits for you know half an hour or so beforehand and when it gets to the point that you sort of think yeah they're ready you get out of the aircraft and you say right go and do it on your own and you're always told never look back and uh, you sort of walk away confidently thinking to yourself, please let this be the right decision. So that's the only time I've ever been worried is, is letting someone else loose on an aircraft on their yeah. own. That is, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that, I guess, because you think, right, it's over to you now. Yeah, absolutely. But I've also, I mean, all of my children have been flying with me. None of them wanted to become pilots, not because of me, but just because. Also, my husband, he already had a private pilot's license, but I did some of his conversion. We, we both lived in New Zealand and got mm. our licenses out there. And so converting it back to the UK, I did some of his conversion for him. And he actually said to me that I was very different in at work than I was at home. He said, you're much more slightly backhanded compliment. But he said, you know, you're much more relaxed. You're very professional. Whereas presumably at home, he just thinks I'm a shouty, angry woman all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, I'm not going to say anything to that. I was going to say, very, very wise and tactful to just make no comment at all. <laughs> no comment. Yes. Can't imagine that. OK, moving on swiftly. So I guess there's a whole bunch of things we could talk about here, because th some of the things that people have asked about, come up time some come up time again some are one-offs so why don't we talk through maybe perhaps give people a little bit of a reminder around the stuff that you're doing before you even take off and also that at the other dynamic end of the flight you know when you're coming into land I think those are the two bits because people often say to me what's the most dangerous part of the flight and I just say glibly none of it it's all yeah. considered you know it's no there's no way that's more dangerous but I would say if you had to sort of put somewhere where you say it's a bit more dynamic take off and landing is probably where that's going on for me I think you have a different view of course I'd say the most dangerous part of the flight is driving home from the airport to be honest well with that's you. true when you're a bit yeah. <laughs> absolutely so you know a pilot's day doesn't start I mean first of all we don't live on aircraft you know we have homes to go to and families to go home to as well so I think that's always really worth bearing in mind particularly for people who are a bit nervous mm. is to remind you that we are human faces at the front of the aircraft and yes. obviously being behind a locked flight deck door doesn't help with you seeing that which is why a lot of people try and come out and sort of speak to you whenever possible mm. but you know a pilot's day starts several days before 
the day itself because we'll get our rosters and we'll see something on there and we'll say, okay, great, I'm going to Inverness, I'm going to Keflavik, whatever. And we know through experience what the potential issues would might be with that day. So we'll know if there's weather forecast, we'll know if there's if it's a short runway or if it's a slightly more complex approach, for example. And actually, we love those things because it's great to be challenged and great to be able to, you know, know that you can handle the aircraft in the way that you need to. Mm. Um, so, you know, already driving into work. So a few days before, we might be sort of looking at the weather and, and checking what it's going to be like on the day itself. We're driving into work thinking, OK, today I'm going to A, B and C. You know, it's a long day, maybe, or um, it's a short day, or there's going to you know, whatever whatever things might come yes. up during the course of the day. That's on our mind already when we're driving to work. Mm. Then we report an hour before. Air, airlines will vary, but no airline reports less than an hour before the flight departs, and that is so that we've got time to look at the flight plan, which has been done for us by the company. So the flight plan is filed and. The routing is determined by people who know what they're doing in terms of routings. And, and if a routing comes up as having a delay on it, they can reroute. And, you know, you might find that your flight plan has been sort of rejigged nine, 10 or 11 times yes. um, by the time you even see it. But obviously, we then need to check that as well and make sure the route looks sensible, make sure the aircraft figures match up. Mm. Um, so, for example, aircraft are registered at different weights so the same you could have three different air, three aircraft in the same aircraft family so let's say for the sake of argument three airbus a320s and they could all be registered at different weights so they're all capable of lifting the same amount mm. but you pay more money to fly a heavier aircraft basically so airlines will have a certain proportion of their fleet that will be registered at the heaviest weight then they have a medium and a lighter weight as well. So that they're not just paying the maximum amount, you know, because there'll be routes. So for example, an Inverness is not going to be as heavy a flight as a Tel Aviv because it doesn't need as much fuel and there's not as much luggage. So that's one of the considerations. But, you know, we will spend a good deal of time looking through the flight plan, checking the numbers, looking at the weather, especially looking at the weather. That's one of the things that determines how much fuel we're going to carry. Uh, and then making our fuel decision. And that decision rests solely on the captain's shoulders. There is no airline in the country or in Europe who that, that will in any way restrict a captain's ability to choose the amount of fuel they want to take. Now, obviously, you, you've got to be sensible about that. Mm. Uh, you're not going to carry an extra 10 tonnes of fuel just for a laugh. You've got to be able to justify it, especially in this day and age. But, you know, there is not any pressure on it. So that's one point I really want to drive home is the captain gets to choose how much fuel they want to take. And that's what if all you, so, so here's a help. Here's a challenge. Then, Emily. So you're you're sat you're back to being a first officer again. And you look over at the captain and you think he or she's got it wrong. It depends largely on your personality, doesn't it? Because you know, if you're very inexperienced and you've spotted something that is a genuine mistake and you bring that up, then you know, any captain worth their soul is going to take that on board. And I think the days of overbearing kind of autocratic captains are long gone. But generally, there's quite um, what they call a shallow, shallow sort of command 
gradient. So although, you know, on, on in my job, for example, you know, I might have been the captain with the first officer, but actually we would address each other in first name terms and you know, have a laugh with each other and things like that. If something happened that needed our full attention, we would absolutely snap back into those captain first officer roles. Yes. Um, yeah. And ultimately, the captain signs their name at the bottom of several pieces of paper to take responsibility for the aircraft and everyone on board. Mm. So actually, and I have had situations before where I've had to say to somebody, we will discuss this on the ground, but we're doing this. If you, you have to be able to justify everything. So if you make yes. a decision, yes. you've got to think to yourself, why would I do that? Or why wouldn't I do that? So you're constantly thinking about that throughout the day. But before you even get out to the aircraft, you've looked at the weather, you've looked at your fuel, you've spoken to your crew, you've found out whether or not you've got any delays and what knock-on effect that might have on the rest of your day. Mm. And that's before you even get to the aircraft to you know, walk all the way around it and check that it's as it should be. That's very reassuring. So you've already, and I know one of the things that your pilots will often say this, that you've already, you just, you always discuss the what ifs. What if there's an engine failure? What if there's a bird strike? What if there's a this, there's a that? And that's all part of, so would you mind sort of elaborating a little bit on that? Yeah, if it's something like a bird strike, for example, they do happen. Aircraft engines and aircraft windows are tested by having frozen chickens fired at them. So obviously dead frozen chickens to make sure that they can withstand an impact like that. So, you know, in that sense, it's very, very safe. So in the second sense, you know, so bird strikes do happen. And I had a bird strike coming out of Corfu one day. And so something like that is not necessarily something we would brief on the ground unless mm. it was a known risk. But, you know, if, you, if you're flying near an airport, there will be birds around as well. So I had this bird strike and we have a decision-making framework that we are taught and that we use regularly. I, I still use it now even though I don't fly anymore. And some companies it's called a Dodar and some companies it's called a Fordeck. It depends on what you're, who you work for basically. But the, the, the basic premise is that the, the D is that you diagnose the problem, you generate options, you make a decision, you assign tasks and then you review. And then you, when you review, you go back to any point of that. Mm. And the Fordeck model is similar. It's fact, find, option, generate, then you review, then you make a decision, then you execute the decision and then you communicate. You know, there's a, there's a framework there that we use to decide what we're going to do. So in this case, I took hit a bird coming out of Corfu. It made a very loud bang. There was no way, you know, there's no way I was going to try and hide that from anyone. Mm. But first officer, what we actually did to start off with, and this is the most important thing, is we flew the aircraft. Yes. So, you know, we have a we have a mnemonic for that as well. It's aviate. So it's aviate first, then navigate, then communicate. So in this case, carry on flying the plane, mm. navigate your way away from the ground and away from the airport and then start getting into the decision making process. Now, in this case, there was nothing wrong with the engines. All the indications were that the engines were fine. The gear came up fine. So we basically decided to carry on back to London on the basis that going back into Corfu would have been ridiculous. But we had places along the route that we could have diverted into if we'd needed to. So we made we, we made preparations for if we had to 
take action but actually the best course of action in that case was to fly back to London and an engineer met us at the other end and we'd basically taken quite a large bird down the second engine and nothing happened apart from a streak of blood on the outside of the engine nacelle so literally nothing happened to the fan blades the engine was absolutely fine it didn't smell too good but you know so so we have a framework when it comes to an engine failure that's slightly different that's slightly more structured in that before every single flight not just every single day but before every single flight we are required to brief each other on our actions if we were to have an engine failure mm. on takeoff so that's something we remind ourselves of before we take before every single takeoff just to make sure that we know what's expected of each other basically Love and it's that. something we train for as well all the time you know it's in our every six months we're in the simulator and engine failures are absolutely the thing that you know that's always going to be there's going to be more than one of them in every single sim detail so yeah I, I think that's very helpful for people also the other thing i'll just draw attention to is that aviate navigate communicate and the reason that matters is that quite often nervous flyers or well, fact anybody actually your there's time distortion goes on so when something happens on an aircraft where you where you come into land you end up doing a go around or you you're about to take off and you you suddenly slam on the brakes or you take off and there's a weird noise like in your situation there's a there's this silence which is different for different people so for the the, the pilots the actual time is about a couple of minutes before they'll speak for the passengers it feels like about four days because yeah. they think they've something happened it's the same with turbulence that the the, the seconds that follow turbulence that they weren't expecting for a nervous flyer are like hours and hours and hours. And it's complete distortion. But that hopefully will help people to understand that you're mo doing the most important thing, which is to, to fly. The and to fly actually, the yeah, I've been, a, even as a non-nervous flyer, as a very confident flyer, I've been a passenger down the back of an aircraft that's had to do a go around. And it's really interesting because everyone's quietly chatting away and then you, you know, the, the power comes up on the engines and you start going up again and the whole aircraft is silent because everyone's mm. like, what just happened there? Uh, and you're right, it does seem like a long time, but the reason for that, so the pilot should always come and speak to you, but the reason that, it, that we don't speak to you straight away is because that's not our priority. Our priority no. is flying the aircraft and making sure it's safe. And we making like that. Sure we're putting it into a safe space and once it's in a safe space and we're back to where, where we're expecting to be again whether that's another approach or, or whatever's happened then we will speak to you but we'll actually speak to the cabin crew first because they shouldn't be finding out information over a, a PA system so there will be a delay but you know rest assured that that is absolutely because the pilots are doing the job they are there to do which is to fly the aircraft love that yeah and i think that helps people you know because it's it's very misunderstood that and quite often people have said their fear has been triggered by a go around or turbulence or something like a, like that sort of incident and in fairness not getting the information they need so what i think what would be really useful is when something happens that everyone should be emailed. By the way, this is an explanation of the theory, the theory, the physics of everything that just occurred to you, but that doesn't happen because you get a little bit of a brief from the pilots and then that's it. You don't, you don't really know. And some, that can be enough to trigger people, you know. 
Absolutely. And and I've said this before as well, is that you need to trust the pilots to do the job that they're there to do in the same way that, you know, I don't need to learn everything about the financial markets to be able to have a pension. And I don't want to be able to do that. So mm. you know, when a stock market crashes, I don't think to myself, oh, I don't trust the people that are investing my money. I think to myself, yeah, I'm paying you to do a job. I trust you to do it in the way that will be best for me. And you need to do that too when you get on a board an aircraft. Yeah, you need to understand, we all, need, we all need to accept and understand that the people sitting at the front are highly qualified, highly trained people mm. who also have families to get back to, also have a life outside of their jobs. And, you know, sometimes we just need to just trust them to do their jobs because that's what they're there to do. And anybody who's ever flown around me as a passenger will know that I, you know, I plug my headphones in, I listen to music, I play a game or I read a book from the minute I get on the aircraft to the minute I get, get off again. I don't even think about the landing because there's somebody down the front that's thinking about that. I don't need to. Yes, that's a very good point. Excellent. Well, let's talk, let's talk about some random things then. So uh, there's been some stuff around this half-term holidays, crew hours, and you know, I, was, I think we were talking about that earlier on, but I just wonder if you could, if people have heard any of this stuff, it, particularly in the media, you could put the actual proper perspective on it. Yeah, well, the thing around crew hours, I think people sort of always say, well, why, you know, why can't they just, why do they have to be restricted in their hours and things like that? So, you know, I'm sure it will be very reassuring to many of you to know that crew are limited to the number of hours they're allowed to work during the day. So there's two different limitations. There's a duty limit, which is the time you arrive at work and, and all the time you're there. And then there's a flight duty limit. And that is determined by how many flights you're operating that day. So we call them sectors. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're operating a four sector day, you're going to have a greater restriction on the amount of time you're allowed to fly than if you're doing a two sector day, for example. And the more sectors you do, the more restrictive it becomes. And it's also determined by what time of day you're checking in for your flight. So if it's a check in, say, between three in the morning and five in the morning, there'll be a greater restriction on that time than there will be um, at 10 or 11 in the morning. And that's just obviously due to the you know, circadian rhythm and, and when we would normally be awake and mm -hmm. things like that. So we are restricted to a certain number of hours flying per day. And in busy periods like this, it is absolutely possible that you might check in at six o'clock in the morning for your day, for example, and that day might be a four sector day and you do the first two sectors. And on each of those flights, you get a, an air traffic control restriction slot. So that then adds an hour. So say for the sake of argument, that adds an hour onto each flight. You might already have maybe only, you might already have an hour and a half flex in your day. So mm. already in those first two flights, you've gone over the amount of time that you're allowed to operate. Now, you are allowed to extend it a little bit if there are extenuating circumstances, um, and that's called going into discretion. And, and for the first hour or so, that's, that's down to the captain. That's the captain's decision wh whether or not they're going to do that. And again, you know, that's not down to the company to force that on people. It's very much the captain's decision, and it's always based on whether or not the crew are rested or the captain is rested and, and, and feels fit enough to fly the aircraft. So it's, it, you know, the, the restrictions are there 
to keep people safe. And it is unfortunate that when you ramp up flying very, very suddenly from a two year period when there hasn't been very much, then there are traffic jams basically in the sky. And that's what causes air traffic control restrictions. It's just that the routing that you're on, and particularly if you're going down to you know, Spain, the Canary Islands, Greece, anywhere that's just really busy at this time of year, it's not just that your airline is flying eight or 10 flights there, you know, from each potentially eight or 10 flights into Geneva, for example, in the winter, Mm. There's something like 10 or 12 flights from Gatwick just by EasyJet every single day yes. um, and particularly on a Saturday and, and all the other airlines are doing the same thing. And obviously you can't all land at the same time. So it's exactly the same thing as if you've mm. got a busy M25 and you're merging, you know, you're merging like a zip, but obviously, you know, there has to be quite a degree of separation. And the other thing that can cause delays, of course, is fog because that slows everything down and everything has to be much more spaced out. So that can cause air traffic control restrictions as well. But it does put a pressure on crew duty hours. And I'm sure you can understand there has to be that legal requirement there to basically allow people to make decisions based on a framework of that's a safety, safety orientated structure. Well, hopefully that puts that one. That does come up as a question. I've seen it's also in the media. There's a lot of hype. And quite often, we both know this, the media portrayal of commercial aviation is not quite right, which is we've been very polite. Absolutely, it's not entirely fair as well. And a good example of that is obviously um, several airlines have been in the news in the last couple of days for cancelling flights and huge queues at airports and all airports are an absolute nightmare. It's living Mm -hmm. hell on earth and you've ruined all our half-term holidays and all the rest of it. I can tell you that I flew back to Inverness from Gatwick yesterday and we did allow extra time because we were worried that we would get stuck at bag drop or stuck in security. We took, I'd say, eight minutes to drop our bags off because, yes, there were a lot of people there, but there were also a lot of bag drop desks open, almost all Mm. of them, actually. Yes. And then it took us about another eight minutes to get through security. So my husband loved it because we were there really early before the flight. And I just sat there and thought, oh, God, yeah, because I would normally cut it quite fine. <laughs> and he likes to be there several days before we leave. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm like him. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I get it. It makes sense because, you know, if you do run into a problem, I mean, even even yesterday, we'd forgotten to book a bag in, uh, book him a bag for his flight. And because we were so early, I was able to phone up and add another one. So that was all fine. But, you know, my my mode of operation wouldn't have allowed for that. But yeah. So um, but, you know, don't believe everything you read in the news and, yes. and remember as well that newspapers have an agenda. So, you know, we've always said this about the unions as well. The unions work very hard for pilots. Absolutely. Rightly. But there is always an agenda when somebody's reporting something. And I think that, yes, it's awful for people whose holidays mm. have been trashed. Mm. And I really feel for people like that. And I really hope that they are well looked after. But actually, it's not ju- it's not the most awful place to be at an airport at the moment. It's just, you, you know, allow more time. Everyone's yes. forgotten how busy it was yes. in 2019. And actually you would have done that in summer 2019. You would have just allowed more time because it would have been busy. And that's mm-hmm. where we are. We've just got used to it all being really quiet and strolling through with no issues. That's a very good, very good point, actually. So talking about media coverage, 
there's this thing about the name low-cost airlines and are they safe? And I've, I talk about this a lot, but I think it's really helpful to hear it from a pilot, particularly as you worked for EasyJet and you worked on the EasyJet fear, the, the fear, Fly Fearless course. I don't know what fear, they call it. Fear of flying, yeah. Yeah. The fearless so, flyer course, yeah. Yes. So you've I've probably been asked this question a million times. So about what's the difference between low cost? Is there such a thing as low cost? And all I've got a view on that, but I, I think it's better coming from you. Well, absolutely. Airlines get branded um, as low cost or legacy airlines or flag carriers or whatever. And I think what's really important to remember is that firstly, there's been a narrowing of the gap between the service that's provided between all the different airlines over the mm. last several years because it's a competitive marketplace. Yes. But it doesn't matter if you are a flag carrying national airline or if you are, you know, if, you, if you're considered to be low cost a better word for that would be no frills. Yes. So the reason your ticket is expensive if you fly with the likes of SAS and BA and KLM and Air France or any of the flag carriers is because you get a free hold bag and you get food on board and sometimes you get a dedicated lounge just for you and you, know, you don't have to mix with everybody else and all the other things that go along with that. So what... Ryanair, so Michael O'Leary and Stelios originally did with Ryanair and EasyJet is they said, well, we can operate flights and we can make the tickets much, much cheaper by removing all of that. So we'll mm. basically get you to pay for everything. So it's not low cost in terms, you know, aircraft costs as much money for BA to buy as they do for EasyJet or Ryanair to buy. Aircraft are multi-million pound machines. And you don't get a bargain one just because you go along and say, oh, no, but we're low cost. You know, if you're buying a lot of aircraft, you might well be able to negotiate a discount like you would do if you're a fleet manager for a big business. Mm. You're buying a lot of cars or renting a lot of cars, but, you know, they still cost a lot of money and they cost a lot of money to run and keep safe as well. And there is no margin for costs to be cut in that arena because, the industry is so highly regulated you, know, you have to have an air operator certificate that basically means that you're signing up to keeping your aircraft on a certain maintenance schedule and all aircraft that operate in and out of the UK and in and out of Europe actually and overfly European airspace have to comply with those regulations it's not down to the airline to choose it's a, a, a national regulating body mm. thing that you have to comply with that so you know when it comes to safety no airline is low cost and i do think it's important to distinguish and perhaps even to stop using the term low cost because yes easyjet tickets potentially could be cheaper than ba tickets but not always no you know you only have to look at a cancelled flight and suddenly the price goes but they use algorithms like every other airline does so it's all about supply and demand so you can have a £45 ticket with BA to Inverness and you could equally have a £160 ticket on the same route with EasyJet. So I think getting away from the term low cost is more helpful because it's no frills. So, you know, you're not going to get sam free sandwiches on board an EasyJet flight. You will have to pay for a whole bag. I think you have to pay for a cabin bag now as well. You know, you pay for speedy boarding, you pay for you pay extra for everything. So it's no frills. And really, really important to remember that because yes. 
safety is at the heart of everything everyone does in the aviation industry, whether it's an airline, whether it's the you know, airline management, the pilots, the engineers, the cabin crew, the ground handlers. Safety has to be where it starts and stops. And, and also to read into that. So a lot of people listen to the podcaster all over the place. You know, we've got about 60 different countries that listen to it, which is just phenomenal. So thank you. Uh, it's the same in your country, wherever you're listening, there are similar regulations and everyone who flies different people's airspace have to comply with those regulations. So anything that lands, sometimes people say, oh, I've got this flight coming up and it's with such and such airline. I've never heard of them. And I would often say, well, at some point, no one had heard of Southwest or, yeah. you know, they all have all or, you know, EasyJet or Ryanair or any of them. They've all appeared at some point, you know. So Absolutely. Have to... And the other thing to think about there is that just because you've never heard of them, that airline still will have had to have gone through a regulatory process in the country where it's registered to be allowed to operate in the first mm. place. So they've been through the same stringent checks and measures that every other airline that operates in that country or airspace has had to go through as well. So not have not hearing of an airline is not a good reason to worry about flying with them because it's still safe. Yes. So are there any airlines that you wouldn't fly on then or any that you've ever thought, well, I just don't feel so safe with this one? There are some airlines I have had less enjoyable experiences of flying on than others Don't there are them. none that I <laughs> no, I won't name them uh, and that's more to be honest with you about the passenger experience um, yes. and, and other passengers and the way they behave that's not anything to do with what the aircraft's like so yeah there's definitely some that I would just if I could avoid flying with them and because there's another option I would do it for my own sense of snobbiness probably but there is no airline, you know, I've flown, we lived in New Zealand. I've been very lucky to fly all over Europe from when I was four years, five, five years old. So there's no airline that springs to mind that I would think I will never fly with them. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm with you on that. So I often say to people, if you, you know, if you're going to go no frills, you were literally going to go really, really cheap. You'll not end up in a seat that might recline. You might not end up very much leg room. You'll be you might be uncomfortable but it's cheap and i personally if i can avoid doing that that's what i do because it's not and exactly the same as you it's nothing to do with the safety it's more about the experience that i'm there i think it depends what you're doing as well doesn't it because if you're just going on an hour's flight from inverness to gatwick or or anywhere in the uk for example what do you actually need in the aircraft that you're going to miss for an hour yes. yeah if you're flying to new zealand then I'm probably going to spend a bit more money. And it's not because the airline's any safer or less safe or whatever. It's because I want the extras. I want to be able to go to sleep when I'm mm. on the flight. Yeah. So I'm going to pay extra to be able to do that. And actually, I don't want to have to pick my bags up in Hong Kong or wherever and trans through to somewhere else. So I'm probably going to book all the way through. So, you know, it, do it does depend very much on why you're flying, what you're doing and what you need at the other end. And in the same way, for example, I personally wouldn't book a flight home at midnight from a holiday just so I could get a cheap flight because I know I'd be knackered when I got home and yeah. you know I don't want to, I don't want to pay 12 pounds for a flight because it lands at three in the morning when actually I could just have normal sleep so it's very much tailored around what you want from it you know my children some of them are still students others of them are, are now working but in their first job so they're probably going to go 
Yeah, and, and I know my daughter, when she went travelling, she flew with some airlines I'd never heard of, and she said, mm. is it safe, mummy? And I'd be like, well, of course it's safe. It's just how are you managing to get all the way from there to there for you know, £9.50? So, yeah. yeah. It's just when you go, because I've been on, you know, there are flights where you can you can bring livestock on and things like that. And that <laughs> and you think, and that can be quite, it can throw you, can't you? You think, wow, how can this be safe? Because we, because I think one of the things that we all do as whether you're nervous or not is we'll see one thing and think it might mean something. So a false association thing. And so you might see, you might get on board and you see some sort of strange things and you think, well, that can't be safe, but it's, well, I don't understand what they're talking about. It can't be safe. You know, these are all assumptions that we make and normal people make that everyone that does that but it's that it's exacerbated for the nervous flyer i'm preaching to the converse with you you know all this so i was thinking could i ask you the sort of question which a lot of people have been don't want to ask but they've but they've some people have direct messaged me and so you have to say dm don't you people have dm'd me and said what happened with china eastern there's nothing to say about that at the moment that would be anything other than sheer speculation. So mm. in all of these cases, you know, there are flight recorders, there are black boxes, you know, cockpit voice recorders, flight data recorders. They are all being examined. They're being examined in America because it was a Boeing aircraft, I believe. And they're also being examined in the country where they were found because they want to piece together what happened. And when the report comes out, that's the time to work out what happened there. Anything I say now is literally guessing. I can't possibly know because I don't have access to that information. What I would say is, and this has happened to me, and we were talking about this a bit earlier. So when I was 16, I was about to do my GCSEs and I was going out to America um, to stay with a friend as a reward for working hard for my GCSEs. Um, which I thought was quite good of my parents to put that much faith in me before I sat them. I was, you know, really looking forward to it. And then Lockerbie happened. And I'm not going to lie, you know, 16-year-old me, I was going, I'm not going on a plane. Look what mm. just happened to that one. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking to my dad about it. And I, was, I said to him, I'm not going. And he said, don't be so ridiculous, darling. My dad flew all over the world. Yeah, he flew to America a lot, actually. And he flew with Pan Am a lot. And he said, don't be ridiculous, darling. What you're not, what you're missing is that three minutes later, another one flew over the top and nothing happened to it. And three minutes after that, the same thing. And three minutes after that, three. So I think we have to put it into perspective. So it's awful when something like that happens. Mm. But because of the numbers of people involved, obviously it's an awful thing to happen. But we do have to put some perspective on that and think how many aircraft are airborne at any one right now, when you're listening to this or now when we're talking how many thousands of aircraft are in the air right now? And I can tell you it's a lot because when the pandemic happened and everything was grounded, they ran out of room at a lot of airports to park them up. They literally were having to you know, park them, sort of tessellate them, you know, to get them in enough space to put them together. So, you know, there are more aircraft in the air at any one point than there ever are on the ground and they all fly around all the time safely. And yes, it's terrible when something like that happens. There's no point trying to speculate. The people who are paid and experienced to do their jobs in investigating are like the pilots that you, know, you put your trust in when mm. you get on board an aircraft. And we've got to trust them to do their jobs. And in the fullness of time, and it will take a long time, it can take up to 
you know, it can take two or three years for these investigations to be carried out because there's a lot of information to piece together. In the fullness of time, that report will come out and then we'll be able to perhaps talk, we can perhaps revisit that again, um, Paul, mm -hmm. and talk about some of the things around that. So I'm, I'm sorry that that's no, not an answer for anybody, but that's where it is. And I think we just have to accept that. No, I think that's fair. And there was a question that came up so you were some out of nurses. I was checking my phone. I was trying to get the wording right. There was a question that came up about the 737 MAX, which comes around a few times that saying, and I think it's that where you put your thinking because someone said, why didn't they spot these things? You know, why, why were there two incidents? And uh, then it was grounded for ages. Why, what, how did that happen? How could it even happen in the first place? And, mm. And I was just trying to attempt to say, well, it's not. It's probably not helpful to think like that. You know, it's easy to say that, but it, you have to sort of think, focus on the fact that they've worked out what went wrong and it won't repeat. You know, and that's absolutely. And I think those are the questions. If you want to worry about those sorts of questions, probably train to become a pilot because they are quite <laughs> industry specific questions. In the same way as you know, when something goes wrong in a hospital, surgeons ask themselves and and nursing staff ask themselves what could they have done better what went wrong mm. what procedures are, are in place that need to be changed and exactly the same thing happened at boeing that is a very it's a very pilot specific question that really you know yes absolutely as pilots we all sort of speak about it and we've asked ourselves questions about it and and actually the industry as a whole came really under the spotlight over that so I think that, yeah, we have to, sometimes things happen in aviation that aren't great. And sometimes things have happened in aviation, particularly in the past that haven't been great. And because of that, a new rule is developed. So pretty much every standard operator, every operating procedure we use on board an aircraft has come from an incident that's happened. So, you know, a simple one is, checking the aircraft is stationary before you set the parking brake when you've been pushed back, for example. Because if you don't check the aircraft is stationary and you put the park brake on, then the nose wheel is going to run over the, the cab of the tug and it could hurt people. So that's a really simple one that um, I can use to explain that. So I think leave the worrying about things like that to the people that need to worry about it because you mm. don't. Yeah, that's good. What about when you're up up there do you ever worry about weather uh, you know any weather turbulence stuff like that whether you're a pilot or whether you're a passenger and why not as a passenger definitely not because um i i absolutely will have looked at the weather at the other end because mainly because i want to know if i need a raincoat or not <laughs> and you know if it's turbulent then i just make sure my seatbelt's tightened a bit faster and know not to have a glass of water on my table because it's going to spill on my lap so it doesn't worry me because I know what causes it. And I know, you know, I know that the pilots are working hard up the front to either just push through it or to climb out of it. So I don't worry about things. You know, when I fly as a passenger, I just don't worry about anything. It's almost like even when I was still working, I was like, well, it's a review. You know, I don't have to think about that. It's great. I can sit back and have a snooze. Uh, when I was operating, again, I never used to worry about it because because I knew what I was going to do and because I knew what to expect and because mm. of the knowledge that I've gained over the years. So, you know, with turbulence, if turbulence was forecast on one of my flights, 
And those of you who've watched the documentary I was in will can actually watch. I've made it onto TikTok, Paul. The turbulence clip from the documentary inside the cockpit that I was in. All right, so, so, hang on, whoa, whoa, whoa. How do I? Because you know, I'm not on. I'm not, I don't look at TikTok apart from if it. Neither appears. do I. My kids but, told me. <laughs> okay, so how would I search for you? Would I search for your name or just Emma and Turbulence? Um, I think if you put Captain Emma Turbulence TikTok, that would probably come right. up with this clip. Right. But you know, on that flight, I knew that turbulence was forecast. Now turbulence forecasts on a flight plan are basically mathematical models and they are for the specific part of the air that you're flying through at that specific time so if you're half an hour late or you get a shortcut and you're going through a slightly different part of air it's just it could be completely meaningless this was quite a strong turbulence forecast and so at the beginning of the flight I just stood up as I always did at the front of the cabin introduced myself and said you know we there, there is a chance that we'll um, fly through some turbulence. I know there's some people on board the aircraft who won't be comfortable with that, but you know, just rest assured that we will be doing everything we can to come out of it. It's it's perfectly safe for the aircraft, but if, if it's going to happen, I will give you plenty of warning. The seatbelt signs will come on and you know it will be completely safe. And several people at the end of the flight said that really helped them to know that it might happen and that there was someone there who was going to be proactively doing something about it. But, you know, turbulence is, we, we often used to liken it to um, driving down a, a track. You know, I don't particularly like driving down the track to my house in, I've got a little Audi TT and I don't enjoy driving down the track in it because every pothole is like, you know, you're moving around <laughs> like this. And when you think about it, that's what it's like flying through turbulence yeah. aircraft. Yeah. So the reason I'm not scared about it is because I know what causes it. I know that the aircraft is completely safe and can operate through even severe turbulence perfectly safely. And I know that it won't last as well. And you can climb out of it or you can route round it. And there are turbulence speeds that you can or turbulence thrust settings that you'll set if you need to. So, um, yeah, again, there's a procedure that covers it. So that's why I don't worry about it. And that's why you shouldn't too, because again, uh, the pilots, it's their job to know about it and know what to do about it. I hope that most of the time they would think about you as well and say, and, and tell you it's coming and tell you what they're doing about it. That would normally be the case, but that's why you shouldn't worry about it because there's at least two people at the front of your aircraft who are fully trained to deal with that and and let them worry about it. Read your book and drink your gin. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good advice. I think there's also, you've hit on something as well, which I think is important to mention is that sometimes people say to me, I wish the pilots would speak more. And I say, well, to be perfectly frank with you, some of them you wouldn't want to speak that much because they don't, you know, they do it because it's part of the job, but they're brilliant at flying. That's what they do. Not everyone wants to chat away on the, on the thing and not everyone wants to hear it. There are a lot of people who fly regularly who get fed up with people banging on the PA. So it's a really difficult balance. But I think the, the message to take away is pilots aren't worried about it because like, like Emma said there, you know, they're worried about you know what why it happens. You've got certain speed settings and all these different procedures you'll do. You're doing it for comfort, not for safety because the aircraft and the pilots are not bothered by it at all. No, I mean, the only slightly irritating thing is it might mean that you have to sort of not drink your coffee for a little bit longer because... Do you get sort of after, do you get counselling for that or do you, are you just expected to just yeah, tough it basically. out? Yeah, basically, you just, yeah. 
You have to go through therapy for, you know, you delay to your drink. I would. Yeah, I mean, that would be it for me. If I wasn't allowed to drink my mocha, I, that, I, I'd be traumatised. Well, if it's the first drink of the day, you know, it's serious stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so this is the sort of stuff that Captain Emma worries about. <laughs> Not being able to have a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm worried about, is like, when when will I be able to, you know, when, when can I let people walk around the cabin safely? Because that means the cabin crew can bring me in a drink or my lunch or whatever. <laughs> I see. It's all Not about your bio needs. I get it. Not yeah, no. quite how it is, but, no. you know, yeah, that's as, that's as much as it ever gets to me is I never, ever. And I flew through some, you know, I flew through turbulence, but I just never worried me mm. because I knew, in fact, I could feel myself relaxing even more as it happened i would i would just relax into my seat even more because i think i'm in control of this and that is the crux of all of this is that generally people who are nervous about anything to do with flying and i yeah i am one are control freaks and we like to be in control of the situation we're in and because i have been in control of an aircraft for many many thousands of hours Mm. that's why I can sit back relax and allow someone else to be in control of it when I'm not flying because I know I know what they're doing and I think that's where those of us who are maybe described by their husbands as slightly controlling from time to time he's wrong you know that's (laughs) where in other situations that aren't flying that's where I can get uncomfortable and I, I don't I don't like for example going out on a speedboat in choppy water because I don't feel like I'm in control of it. And I know the people who are taking me out on it wouldn't do it if it wasn't safe because mm. I'm paying them to take me out to look for dolphins, you know, but, but because I'm not driving the boat and because I'm not, that's where I sort of get anxious. And I think that hopefully that is, that helps you to relate to the fact that, you know, I'm not just being gung-ho about this. I don't get nervous about flying because I know about it. Nice. So if I could just squeeze one more thing out of you, it would be this. It's the clothes that everyone expects now on the podcast is that if you had to give, you gave a, a real fantastic piece of advice last time, but if you had to give like your final top tip for anyone who's scared of flying and thinking, yes, but I could never get past it or no one's as bad as me, uh, what would you say? I would say don't beat yourself up for feeling like that because there are probably about another 19 or 20 people on board the flight that feel the way you do to varying degrees. Mm. And actually, you know, allow the people at the front to do the job that you're paying them to do. You already put your trust in them when you bought your ticket. So allow them to do that and don't try and fly the aircraft in the back, you know, because you don't know how to do it. And even if you have got a pilot's license, you know how to do it a bit you're not qualified on that aircraft type so just allow them to do that job and there's so many so much more you can do during the course of a flight than worry about the people up the front who have got families to go home to at the end of the day just like you have and whether or not they're able to do it so I would just say you know if having a drink is your thing then great but that can that can make things worse but you know take a really good book on board download a movie read read a magazine you don't normally read and just allow your trip to be something that is you know part of getting it you to where you are or part of your holiday if that's what you're doing that would be my top tip for this for 2022 love it (laughs) you heard it here captain emma brilliant 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 thank you 
I'm I'm so grateful again for you coming on and doing it. I mean, normally people do one podcast and then that's it. They say, oh, I've escaped now. You won't pester me anymore. But you actually asked, you said, isn't it time we did another one? Which I was so grateful for. So thank you. That was brilliant. Lots of different tips and really nice nuggets of information that's going to help people there. So on behalf of the people who are going to listen to it, thank you very much. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. And I, I have really enjoyed being able to answer some of the questions on the Facebook group as well. And what I would also say is there is no such thing as a stupid question. So if there's anything that you would like to ask or you want to find out more about, contact Paul at Lovefly and you know go through him and he will direct questions to me and some of the other pilots that help Paul out as well. So you know, there's no such thing as a stupid question and, you know, it's it's okay to want to ask and be able to sort of find out what's beneath the surface. So. Oh, amazing. Emma, you're so generous. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.